Ladies and gentlemen, welcome. What a treat we have for you tonight. My name is Chris Gordon. I'm the events manager at Readings. And on behalf of Readings, on behalf of the Church of All Nations, on behalf of Wilkinson Publishing, welcome. It's wonderful to have you here. Now, my job is just very much to talk about housekeeping, give these gentlemen the introduction that they don't need, and uh, to tell you how it's going to work tonight. But while you're making yourself comfortable, I think that I will beg you, ladies and gentlemen, beg for you to put your phones at this very moment on silence. Hush. We cannot, my friends, have phones ringing out tonight. Philip Adams, as we know, is an Australian humanist, a social commentator, a broadcaster, a public intellectual, and, ladies and gentlemen, a farmer. He has played a key role in the revival of the Australian film industry during the 1970s. He was the author of the 1969 report which led to legislation by Prime Minister Gorton in 1970 for an Australian Film and Television Development Corporation, later, or as we know it now, Australian Film Commission. And this is why I mention it, because together with Barry Jones, Adams was a motivating force behind the Australian Film, Television and Radio School which was established under the Whitlam government. And Adams produced, and I don't know whether you know this or not, but he produced, amongst many other films, The Getting of Wisdoms, Wisdom and Don's Party. He and his wife grow garlic, olives, and farm organically fed cattle. Barry Jones, writer, lawyer, social activist, quiz champion, and former politician. He has always been, ladies and gentlemen, a man aware of his limitations. He says, and this is a direct quote from one of his books, I was too political to be fully accepted intellectual, too intellectual to be regarded as an effective politician in the Australian context. It is for these reasons that he is National Trust on the National Trust list of Australian living treasures. Tonight, these two gentlemen will be talking about Barry Jones' Dictionary of World Biography. This is the product, of course, of a lifetime of learning. Now, ladies and gentlemen, as you know, tonight we are recording this wonderful event for Live with Philip Adams. That means that there will be no questions, I'm afraid, because they just don't work in a recording. That doesn't mean that after the event is over that you cannot come up and get your book signed, which tonight is at the very special price of $70. Tomorrow, ladies and gentlemen, it could be 90, but <laughs> tonight it is 70. So it doesn't mean that at that moment you couldn't come up and get your book signed and ask Barry a question then, because I am quite sure that he will know the answer. So let's make these two gentlemen very welcome. Thank you so much for being here. I'm so looking forward to this conversation. To you.
we are gathered here in the sight of God. Reddings have chosen as the venue a really beautiful church and it's an appropriate place for me to be talking to Barry because he is a secular saint. Barry Jones AC, and that's just one of his enormous sort of pile of, uh, of alphabetical honours. It's been my pleasure, in fact my honour, to have known Barry for decades. I forget when we met, but it was some considerable time ago. And we are here to cut the ribbon for, on, well, for an ongoing, a work in progress called the Dictionary of World Biography. Would you believe that in this, between these hard covers, stiff versus limp, as Dame Edna would say, uh, there are 400 new entries. So the book has never stood still, has it? It keeps evolving constantly. Absolutely. And uh, because everywhere I go, every experience I have, for example, being in Iran last year, suddenly made me think, well, Maybe I haven't dealt adequately with the great Iranian or the great Persian writers. So the result was I had to redo, you probably picked this up, the entry on Ferdasi, for example, or the entry on Saadi, or writing more about Rumi than I had before. And so the result is that everywhere I go, if I have a new kind of experience, that new experience makes me think of things in a different way. Uh, more and more writing about, say, the profound difference between the Shiites and the Sunnis and the significance historically of the, that cataclysmic gap between those two uh, elements of, of Islam. So the result is that everywhere I go, I think, oh, look, that wasn't in there before and it's got to be in now. So there's a kind of an expansion of, of material. And I, you know, recently, for example, I've been giving some lectures in connection with the Mahler cycle that the uh, Melbourne Symphony Orchestra is doing. So naturally, the entry on Mahler becomes expanded because I'm picking up information and points of view and so on that I hadn't thought of before. And similarly, uh, uh, you know, I've been going through a period of uh, uh, tremendous enthusiasm uh, about Homer and rethinking about the significance of Homer. Which Homer is that? The one in uh, <laughs> The Simpsons? Well, he's the third one, but it's thought now, I mean, there's an increasing view now that you've got to think of the, uh, the, the Homer who wrote the Iliad, or rather who was the editor of Genius who put the, put the uh, Iliad together uh, and another editor of Genius, using the same name, who did the Odyssey, because the time gap really between the, the works is too great, I think, and there is a difference in the nature of the language and the way in which it's put together. So I think the increasing view among Homeric scholars is that before Homer Simpson came along, that you had one Homer called Homer P, who's associated with the Iliad, and Homer Q, is associated with the Odyssey because there's a, probably a time gap of about 50 years between. I'm, I'm talking to Jones B. And as you can see, there is a profound difference between us. Uh, his brain remains as sharp as ever while I descend 
slowly but surely into dementia. And so I have to keep a copy of this book by my side. When I go on air at night, there it is, because I had to suddenly think, is Nixon dead or not? For example. You've always got to check that. And yes, I did right. check it, and he's still dead. Yes. Yes. Which, which is good, really, I, th I think. I th I but think if there I'm was balanced. evidence to the contrary, I'd, I'd, I would have put it in. I, um, knowing that you and I were going to have this little chat, I wrote a, I forewarned you in a column in The Australian at the weekend, and I instanced one character to show the problems of the biographer, let alone the, uh, the problems of someone who has to condense a biography into, a, into such a small number of words. Churchill is up there, of course, with uh, Jesus, Lincoln, Napoleon and Hitler as probably the most written about person in history. And just when you think there's absolutely nothing more that could possibly be said about Winston Churchill, along comes a Don with a special interest in accountancy who gets hold of Churchill's financial records and goes through them with the forensic frenzy that the tax department might. And a completely different Churchill emerges. Uh, were you astonished? I know you've read this stuff. I've, I've, I'm reading the book currently, and it is a very, very remarkable book about re-emphasising Churchill and his uh, uh, capacity to consume champagne of the very highest quality. It was a figure that would... Uh, it doesn't exactly... Uh, it's not equivalent to the national debt, but it was pretty high. Uh, Hence his greed and need for royalties. The, absolutely, and the fact, of course, that he had this host of ghostwriters who were writing for him. And I, I noticed, for example, in the, in the new uh, book by Luff, that um, it was interesting that he had a ghostwriter called Eddie Marsh. And Eddie Marsh... Uh, Stop talking while you put your microphone back on, please. Whoop, whoa. I may need some assistance. This is terrible. Can you I, told you, I told you to use the suppository microphone, Brian, <laughs> and this wouldn't have happened. You can probably, I, but assistance is coming. Okay, we're right. But it was interesting that he, he sold the, these pieces that he used to, uh, he sold to the Harmsworth family, and he used to pay, uh, he used to get 700 pounds for each of these articles, and he gave Eddie Marsh, who actually wrote them, 25 pounds. But at least, as he said to Marsh, at least there was a certainty about it. Now, you knew you were going to get a cash flow of 25 for each one. So he didn't feel, he thought Marsh didn't feel too discriminated against. But I think if you read my article, you can see that there is one of the things about, there's Churchill the hero, but there's also Churchill the deeply flawed character who had a great collection of really terrible friends. And you can see that in the 1930s, one of the reasons, one of the reasons, say, that somebody like Baldwin didn't want to have him back in the cabinet was that Baldwin, who maybe was a bit sanctimonious in his own way, but Baldwin couldn't stand the people around, around uh, Churchill. And they were really terrible people, like the famous Bendor Grosvenor, the second Duke of Westminster, who was absolutely horrific Every, everyone in the audience knows that. But he was a, but he was, no, but he's an absolutely ghastly character. And yet, 
Churchill would go away with him every year, and then they'd go engage in this gambling uh, enterprise where they'd go down to the south of France. And the result was that without telling Clementine just where all the, all the household money was really going, he was spending a fortune and then going off and finding people who would who'd be prepared to uh, uh, bail him out. Bernard Baruch, the great um, uh, New York uh, broker, uh, helped him out on a number of occasions. So he had very, very strange background and you had people who were really on the on the kind of very shifty end of the political spectrum. I don't want to dwell too much on um, Churchill, but in summarising the latest books in the New York Review of Books, Geoffrey Wheatcroft concludes, he abides still a vast looming presence, defying the biographer, his greatness matched by his meanness, his nobility by his brutality, his courage by his rapacity, the man of the century, as elusive as ever. I want to talk about the ethical problems of how you summarise a life like this. Do you, uh, do you talk about the life, the climactic, heroic dimension? Do you favour that? Do you, uh, do you sort of try to find a mean average in the quality of a life and write a, a more balanced assessment? How do you approach this? Well, in, in a sense, there's a degree of creative writing and, in fact, even perhaps even dramatic writing involved. You can see that the story of Churchill, for example, just as a, uh, a, an example, or, or the story of Roosevelt, have a kind of uh, dramatic quality, the quality of a novel about them. Here you've got uh, um, a damaged child, damaged because he had, as I remarked about his parents, you had a very remote and bullying father and a very remote and self-indulgent mother. And the result is that at a very early age, he simply bunged off to boarding school. Uh, and the result is that he, he adores both parents, but it's not reciprocated. And so that you can see he's a very damaged character right from the start. And perhaps that's something that we find with a number of other politicians. Rudd was a deeply damaged character, if you think of that quality of rejection. Malcolm Turnbull, you know, because of the problem he had with, uh, uh, with the family situation, something he raised when he was actually campaigning, if we could use that term, in the election <laughs> campaign. Uh, the, uh, you could see that they're, that they're people who were damaged by the sense that they had a feeling of rejection which they had desperately then to overcome. I um, had the, the interesting task of writing the introduction to your autobiography. And in it, I pointed out that uh, you were almost entirely absent. I made the point that it was rather like those bodies you see in Pompeii, which were cavities into which plaster was poured. People misunderstand what they are. And I said, the only way you dis you'll discover Barry is by pouring plaster into the holes. This is because you avoided, to an extraordinary extent, your personal life. Now, I raise this because you invade the privacy of others necessarily when you're preparing these things, but you avoid invading your own. 
Well, I'm not, not a subject, really, that uh, eligible to be in the Dictionary of World Biography, although as part of the coverage, there's a kind of uh, summary of, of some of the things that I've done. But I think it is true. It's perhaps because of my intense interest in what it is that drives other people that I tend to be rather protective about my own, uh, uh, my own private life. And I've, uh, it, it, you're, undoubtedly, you're undoubtedly right. Uh, it's not a criticism. It's just no, 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 no. But it's it's a very valid it's a very valid observation, and I think always too it's a question of of protecting in a way um, my my ability. I don't want to dispel too many illusions because I want to be able to say I, I'm able to form a detached judgment on things. I'm very very keen on the idea of, of maintaining objectivity. And so the result is that um, if I, if I, it would be easy enough to descend into a kind of uh, uh, self-regarding sense where you say, poor me, I was a victim here and so on. I, if you think of my political career, which you'd have to say was ambiguous, and uh, you know, part I'm not of discussing your sexuality, <laughs> Barry. <it's> a, <laughs> but that, in in a sense, there's a very real, uh, uh, there is a very a protective element about it. But it's also to protect others as well. We know from uh, Samuel Johnson's life, uh, and we certainly know from the writings of Simon Winchester uh, about how the great dictionary tradition began with both Johnson and, of course, with Oxford. Where does the history of biographical dictionaries begin? I suppose the Bible is a good case, Old and New Testament. Well, I've been thinking about this, this issue a lot, and, of course, the, probably the starting point would have to be Plutarch. You see, if you go back to Plutarch, because Plutarch was... There's quite a good entry there. Uh, Plutarch wrote this book which was no doubt, of course, uh, written, out in well, written out in manuscript, but there must have been many copies made and people used to read it out, in which he's got parallel lives of the great Romans and the, and, uh, the great Greeks. And then Suetonius is writing about uh, uh, very, very scandalous, very scabrous accounts of the lives of the Roman emperors, so that you've got a very strong biographical tradition which comes out of the period of the, of the Greek, first of all, the Greek model, and then the adaptation of it uh, in Rome. Then you had, of course, uh, the first great uh, autobiography, or well, we had four short biographies, all imperfect in the New Testament, uh, and a bit of self-revelatory uh, uh, stuff of St. Paul, uh, but you really don't have much in the way of, say, the writing of a life as a thing in itself, except for St. Augustine. And Augustine's uh, Confessions, I mean, this is a very remarkable, a very remarkable book, one of the great masterpieces. Um, but you then go really for the best part of a millennium before you get back to really writing about the, the individual as a subject. And so you then get, obviously, with Montaigne, who's one of my great 
enthusiasts, you can see that Montaigne, in a way, picked up the tradition that had been established by St. Augustine, but inverted it. That whereas what Augustine was doing was pursuing the city of God, Montaigne said, well, I'm really starting off with me, thanks all the same, about how my mind works, how I contemplate what's going on around it. So that was a tremendous, that was a tremendous uh, introduction to the whole idea of, of of the examined of the examined life, and then of course you but you really go on in the in the great 18th century tradition of the encyclopedia in in France. They start to do uh, a lot of biographical writing. Then that's followed by Chambers's encyclopedia in in London. Then followed by Encyclopedia Britannica. A lot of biographical entries there, and then in the 19th century at just the time that you're starting to get universal literacy and the rise and rise of the public library where people come to a central point and, and start reading away like mad, you've got the development of the, the, the Dictionary of National Biography. Let's leave that to later because that's All right, okay. a topic. Okay, so we're sitting here with Barry Jones and we're discussing the, uh, the latest edition of a dictionary of world biography, and how do you how do you summarise life for a CV or an entry in Who's Who or a fantail wrapper? Uh, I take pity on you, Barry, toiling over your latest edition. I want to know how you crack it to get in this book. Uh, I know that certain categories are automatically included. Quote, most popes, all British sovereigns and prime ministers, French and German kings and presidents, American presidents, etc. When I first began compiling this, which was actually 60 years ago when hardly anyone in this audience was alive, uh, the, um, that when I started doing that, it was really a matter of, first of all, choosing who was going to be in it and choosing the, and working out the comparative length of space. In these days, long before Wikipedia and long before you know, what we, we take for granted from coming, getting out of Google, it was really a matter of, of looking to see who are the characters who are written about most in other books so that you could go into, say, the public library in, in Melbourne and you could take, say, uh, uh, half a dozen books at random, well, or a dozen books at random, look through the index. And if you found that of the dozen books that you had, that 10 of them had an entry on Winston Churchill, then you knew he had to be there. If in fact you, you, you found only three or four had an entry on Plutarch, well, Plutarch ought to be there, but perhaps a smaller entry. So that in a sense, it was a matter of saying, who, who are the kind of people that readers generally will want to look up to because, will want to look up and find out about because they've been reading all these other books and cross-references keep coming up. And that was why one of the fundamental elements about the book right from the start was the whole idea of cross-referencing, the use of the asterisk to indicate linkages between things, so that if I'm talking about 
Homer, for example, though I'm talking about Homer and his influence on writers as uh, dispersed as, as Chaucer, as Shakespeare, as James Joyce, as Kazantzakis and so on. So that you get that idea that, you, that Homer can't just be seen in isolation. He's got to be seen in a, in a very much broader context. The same with musical influence. Where did Mozart get his influences from? Who in turn did he influence? One of the problems you must have had was how many Australians to include. You couldn't be, uh, the book that was going to sell a lot of copies here, we hope, but you couldn't be accused of cultural cringing. Well, that was always a, always a, a difficult question. That you had the danger that if you, if you had too few Australians in, then people would say, well, you're being too harsh on your fellow citizens. Uh, on the other hand, if you were too indulgent and put every legislative councillor of the state of Victoria in, then you'd say, well, you know, you're, you really are uh, trivialising it. Uh, and I didn't want to do that. So I think what I had at the back of my mind was to say, I used to compare, say, the number of uh, Canadians that I might have in the world. I mean, if I had uh, Helen Garner in, was I also going to have Margaret Atwood? And the answer is, of course. Uh, and, uh, or if you're going to put in Tom Keneally, do you also put in Alice Munro? Well, of course. So I tried to get some sense of balance. But I knew that there were certain categories of people. For example, it's very likely that, um, say, you'd probably had a higher proportion of people associated with Israel, say, than you would with the state of Victoria, simply because Israel, although it's got, well, now I suppose its population is really about the same as New South Wales, might be a bit ahead of Victoria now, but you can see that its influence and the degree of international concern about what's happening in Israel is so significant. You couldn't leave out, say, Israeli Prime Minister, where you might odd, where you might leave out the odd Victorian Premier. Sorry, if, Kate. <laughs> if you uh, reach out for who's who, and you've had an association with yep. who's who in the past, you will discover very quickly that once you're dead, you're gone. As soon as you cark it, you're out of who's who. Yeah. Uh, do you drop some people, clearly not on the basis of their death, otherwise it'd be a very thin book, but do you ever drop someone from your ongoing dictionary of world biography? Yes, but I haven't dropped them out because they're dead. I drop them out because I think on reflection that, that they've really faded away, that no one is really going to be very interested in it. So that some of the, say, some of the writers who were still... Uh, you know, thought about a lot, say, in the 1930s or 40s, and I, that I remember as a, as a child, uh, but now are completely unread and their books are completely out of print. Is there any point in keeping them there? I think, I think probably, probably not. So some, num some names simply drop out. Incidentally, of course, it has to be said that one of the... Um, preconditions for being in the Australian Dictionary of Biography or the Dictionary of National Biography in England is that you have to be dead. They've only got stiffs there. They won't, uh, they, they don't have any living, living people in. And, uh, you know, when they, when they set up the, the Dictionary of National Biography in, in Britain, uh, the, the target date was they didn't have anybody who died after 
Queen Victoria, because they thought history would come to an end, you see, with Queen Victoria's death, although a few things have happened since then, and they've had supplementary volumes, but you, you, you got in with two preconditions. You had to be dead, and you had to have died before Queen Victoria, otherwise out. And the same thing here with our addiction. That's why a lot of our contemporary politicians aren't aren't ambitious to get in the Australian Dictionary of Biography because they, they, they make we'll, the essential preconditions. We'll move on to the National Dictionary shortly, but just so people listening get a feeling for what it is you actually do, I wonder if you'd be kind enough to open this tome yep. and read an entry of which you're particularly proud. Well, I mean, uh, just to give you an example of how I've dealt with a political figure, not of my political persuasion. In fact, I've tried to be, I mean, I'm, I'm tough on totalitarians, but I wouldn't say that I am an uncritical supporter of everyone on the left and a, and a, a, you know, a strong attacker of anyone on the right. But I'll just quote briefly from what I've written about Macmillan. Hang on, would you take your glasses off? You've just dislodged, you've just dislodged your little microphone again. Okay, All right, on we go. All right. That's better, thank you. This is Harold Macmillan. I said, in 1963, de Gaulle's refusal to admit Britain to the common market, and later the Profumo affair were, were major failures. Macmillan's future resolved itself when in October, a diagnosis of prostate cancer, wrongly thought to be inoperable, led to his resignation. He ensured that Butler did not succeed and the Prime Ministership went unexpectedly to the 13th Earl of Hume, Charlotte Douglas Hume. Macmillan married Lady Dorothy Cavendish, daughter of the 9th Duke of Devonshire, and the marriage was deeply unhappy. She loved another MP, Robert Boothby, and he continued to mourn. His six volumes of autobiography were surprisingly dull. Enoch Powell wrote that reading them was like chewing on cardboard. His languid Edwardian demeanour was deceptive, concealing a conflicted interior. Like Churchill, he had an American mother from Indiana. With Attlee, he was the only British Prime Minister in three centuries wounded in action. He had the unhappiest, unhappiest Prime Ministerial marriage since Lord Melbourne and was the best read Prime Minister since Gladstone. I've just had a phone call from Julian Fellows. He wants to buy the rights to that entry <laughs> and to make a sequel to Downton Abbey. But the, the amount of compression in that is quite extraordinary. It's, sort of, it's like watching angels dance on the head of a pin. Yes, well, that, that uh, comparison has occurred to me. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, but you see, I notice on the next page, you see, I see the entry on Sapper. Herman Cyril McNeil, Sapper, the English author, bestseller in the 1920s and 30s. Now, I'm wondering, the next iteration of it, maybe he's due to the, to the chopper, because uh, you you know, I'm not sure... Breaking news, you heard it here first, folks. I'm not sure how many people read Sapper anymore. I mean, he was all right in his time, but he's not exactly... I mean, he's been overtaken by so many other writers who, who you, need to, you have to find room for. Okay, let's move to the Dictionary of National Biography, and you're basically just back from a, a sort of a gab fest at the ANU, aren't yep. you, with, with fellow biographers. 
Well, what the, the Australian Dictionary of Biography um, has just had its 50th anniversary. The first volume was launched in uh, 1965 by Sir Robert Menzies, and um, that, of course, uh, was the great work, more than anyone else, of the late Sir Keith Hancock. I mean, organised it, and then it's gone on to 18 or 19, 18 or 19 volumes. And, uh, uh, but they had, as one of the star turns at this uh, uh, conference, they brought in Sir David Carradine, the English uh, uh, historian and biographer, uh, who um, uh, is the editor-in-chief of what is now called the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography, because Oxford University Press have bought out the rights. And they also, which I hadn't known, they also bought out the, um, uh, the American Dictionary of, of National Biography. And they had people from Ireland, they had people from Canada, they had people from New Zealand. And of course, uh, naturally, they're writing from entirely their own historical perspective because they see these biographies as being, uh, these collections of biographies as being the national history. And one of the things that David and I were discussing, we had a kind of dialogue, I mean, a bit like our dialogue tonight, but one of the things that David and I were discussing was the question of, I've been able to do a dictionary of, of world biography of limited scope. How do you get on if you want to do a multi, multi, multi-volume uh, dictionary of world biography? Or, for example, who does the entry on Mao? Well, exactly. I mean, do you, do you get some dude from Harvard who's immensely skilled in the area and will write something from an objective point of view? Or do you find, say, that in China, they say, well, we've got some sort of proprietorial interest in Mao, and we think that somebody nominated by the party should nominate, should write the entry. And so you've got that problem about whether, and if you're going to, if you're going to do um, entries, for example, on, on Muhammad, if you're going to do entries on somebody like Al-Ghazali, for example, who changed the whole way in which the, the Islamic world was thinking about science and, and, and connection with the rest of the world, uh, do you leave that to a Western scholar to do, or do you say, well, naturally, it has to be somebody within the Islamic tradition? And what you may then find is that you're, you're trading off uh, in a way and simply saying, well, you know, we'll allocate a certain amount of space, but on the other hand, we're going to allow each nationality to say, this is the way we look at this character, as it doesn't matter what you think in another country or in another, in another tradition. But uh, that assessment would also change with the passing of time. Mao's reputation has bounced like a rubber ball in the last few decades. Stalin's within, too. And Stalin's too. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, even, even with Stalin too, the, the uh, well, I shouldn't say even with Stalin, the thing that struck me, I was reading quite a lot of stuff when I was reviewing or re-editing re my entry on Stalin. And it was the realization of how impressive Stalin was with some of the people who went along to some of those international conferences expecting to, uh, uh, you know, simply dislike him so much that they weren't prepared to give him any credit for anything. And uh, 
uh, at the Tehran conference, for example, um, Churchill launched into a tirade about Stalin and which he raised 22 specific points of complaint and Stalin didn't appear to be taking much notice, just sat there, didn't take a note. And then when Churchill had finished his diatribe, Stalin answered every point that had been made, each of the 22 points in order, without a note, with full detail and so on. Thank and God he wasn't on picker box. Uh, right, just <laughs> he, would have, he would just have trounced well, you. Well, he wasn't. He'd yeah. have gone, he'd definitely have got the box. The, and, uh, but, uh, and you see, people like uh, Alan Brook, you know, General Alan, Sir Alan Brook, later Viscount Alan Brook, and, and Henry Stimson, who are both really very conservative, they said, we never expected anything like this, but his mastery of detail and his capacity to mount an art was, you know, just, just so extraordinarily impressive. The other thing is, uh, I don't want you to give the impression that, uh, that Stalin, um, I don't want you to think of Stalin as a wimp, but there's now some serious revision about the number of people that Stalin actually bumped off. And it's thought that probably the number of deaths he's directly responsible for is only about half what we thought. Still lots. It's still lots. Yes, yes. yes. No, I shouldn't joke because it is millions. But it means that, it, in fact, the number of people who were, who were killed directly because is far less than Hitler. Now, at one stage, it used to be thought quite commonplace to say, well, Hitler did these atrocious things, but in fact, Mao's, the, the, the number of, we don't, not sure about the Mao number, but the Stalin number was greater. Well, it now looks as if it wasn't. Uh, if the views of major figures change over, over periods of time, views of major figures now change by the hour. Let's imagine we were, let's hypothesize and we've got a nice shiny bright new prime minister. He seems to have morphed and transformed and changed over and over again in the last 10 minutes. Yes, I, I see that. I, th this is perhaps one of the arguments. So in other words, which Turnbull do you do a, a, an entry on? I, what I did, I did a somewhat, um, I, I did a kind of balance entry on, on Malcolm, you know, on the one hand this, on the other hand that. But I must say, I, because I'd had quite a lot to do with him, uh, in the period of the Constitutional Convention when I was the Deputy Chair and when I have very happy memories of, uh, of Malcolm as being part of the, uh, what we called the, uh, uh, the Resolutions Committee, which was the Politburo of the, of the Convention, which met privately. And uh, I remember that we had in that group, we had Julie Bishop was there, we had, um, uh, we had Gareth Evans, uh, Malcolm Turnbull, uh, and we had George Pell. And I remember Gareth... Oh, your cup runneth over. Gareth, Gareth, and, uh, Gareth and Malcolm used to sit next to each other. There may have been some slight element of competition between them about who was the smartest kid in the room. But, but I remember that they used to exasperate George Pell, and uh, so much so that he... Uh, expostulated on a few occasions, and I've got a very vivid recollection of Malcolm and Gareth blowing kisses at him, which, which drove me. So the result is I'm prepared to forgive him a lot, you see. I talked earlier about your um, 
avoidance of the personal in your marvellous autobiography. Uh, these days, of course, no one avoids the personal. Who needs, who needs uh, Freud's couch when you've got Oprah's, Oprah, Oprah's couch? Who needs, uh, who needs you to write a dictionary of world biography when everyone's got a Facebook page? I mean, everyone now parades the most extraordinary intimacies about their own lives. Well, I, I, let me make it quite clear. I do not have a Facebook page and, uh, and no, no desire to have it. And one of the things that struck me, uh, and I ha I'd have to check this to make sure whether I'm absolutely correct, but I'm broadly correct. When you think of those terrible multiple shootings in the United States, all the cases that I've followed up carefully, they've all had Facebooks where they've been where they've been saying, this is the way I feel about the world and, you know, watch out if you don't understand what my point of view is. And uh, it is extraordinary that, you see, but, but it leads to that, it leads to that problem, which is, I suppose, central to the whole democratic dilemma, as to whether everybody's opinion is to be treated as having equal value. And I remember the, um, you see, of course we agree with one person, please, I hope, one person, one vote. We don't say, well, if you've got a triple doctorate, then you get three degrees, and if, you, if you've only had primary school education, you only get a single vote. You would, we wouldn't agree with that. And yet, on the other hand, there are grave dangers in people, in, in simply saying that points of view are absolutely equivalent in value, and I remember, I remember uh, a, a row. You remember um, Mark Latham? Uh, when, I, tr I try not to. But when Mark, uh, when Mark, I remember when Mark was rewriting the education policy for the Labor Party, and Gareth and I were on, on a committee uh, working out a kind of an overview, and he had this insistence that. Um, TAFEs and, and CAEs were to be regarded exactly the same way, and that every course, that no course had special value, that every course was to be treated absolutely at an identical level. And I remember him saying that um, a, a brain surgeon, uh, you, you don't need to take any, to, to put any more effort into training a brain surgeon than you do a pastry cook. And that seemed to me a slightly uh, a bizarre view. And I, I remember saying to him, well, if you ever have a stroke, I said, be careful that you don't ask for a pastry cook. <laughs> and uh, so the result is that, but on the other hand, in a sense, the democratic, pra the democratic principle is unimpeachable. Yes, of course, uh, a, a pastry cook shouldn't be looked down on. He's got to, he's got to be treated as a, as a human being, as a citizen, as having great value. But if you say, how much money do we put into the training of, say, a brain surgeon compared to how much we put it, do we really think, well, there's got to be an equality in it? Well, at one level, at a social level, yes, but in fact, it's one of those things that you've, you, you can't quite resolve what the appropriate formula is. There's a form of biography known as the ASIO file, and, and a couple of years ago, I managed finally to get mine. 
they'd spent decades denying it existed and they'd opened it when I was 15 and as I read through it, the parts of survived redaction, the interesting bits were all still covered up, I realised how entirely and utterly irrelevant that process is now because of the collection of megadata, the fact that we're under surveillance constantly. As we sit here, this conversation is not entirely private. No, no, no. So the competition for the, you know, between the historian and the algorithm is intensifying, isn't it? The amount of data and information on virtually every individual is growing by orders of magnitude. Well, and, and you'd have to say that um, um, Julian Assange, who used to live not very far from where we are now, and uh, Edward Snowden really made that point uh, very dramatically, and there's never been a proper, a proper answer to that. And, and the, uh, th this, is, this is one of the great tragedies. I mean, this is not something that I've dealt with so specifically in the Dictionary of World Biography, but it's something that I've at least started scratching the surface of in, in Sleeper's Wake uh, all those years ago, that in some ways the whole um, uh, nature of the information the IT revolution, the information revolution, hasn't really quite worked out as people thought, that there have been uh, you know, several, several quite contradictory elements involved in it. One is that instead of people reaching out to the universal, it tended to mean that a lot of users of people who are absorbed in the IT world, the emphasis is really on the, on, on the personal, on the world of the personal and the immediate rather than the universal and the, and the long term. The other thing is that the sheer volume, the sheer volume of, uh, of material generated uh, means that uh, you've got people devoting a tremendous amount of uh, enthusiasm to working, working things through in, in, in the belief that they will find something that, that answers some question about the nature of conspiracies, the nature of of, of challenges to democratic governance. One of the many things you and I did together, apart from kick-starting the film industry, was the Commission for the Future. Yep. And at the very, very first meeting, a British scientist stood there and said, information, no, data isn't information, information isn't knowledge, and knowledge isn't wisdom. Yep. So we still need the process, don't we, of refining data to turn it into information, working yeah. on the information to make it... Someone didn't turn their phone off. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. Uh, it's my daughter, Aurora, who I'm very proud of because she headed the, uh, the get-up team in Bass. Uh, <laughs> but to come back to that, come back to that, we still need to rationalise, to assess, to make these subtle judgments that thus far, touch wood, touch, touch that particularly impressive piece of wood, which is the pulpit, uh, algorithms can't do. But it also means that you're looking to form judgments as a very, in a very short-term way because you've got a political imperative that says, look, we've got a significant debate coming up in the parliament next week and we need to have some 
really hot stuff. And the result, or as you found with, with uh, uh, Blair, Bush also, of course, but Blair especially, as revealed in the Chilcot report, to say, well, look, uh, the Parliament's meeting next week, we really need something that reinforces this idea of an overwhelming uh, need to go to war. You say, well, Prime Minister, the evidence is a bit ambiguous. So, no, well, don't give me that. Just, just tell me what you, can, what you can say, and then you look at it, and then you embellish it somewhat. And uh, later on, of course, um, Fortunately, no Australian Prime Minister would do that. No, well, we, we've, we've got our own way of doing things, which is to keep the Parliament well out of it, uh, on the basis of what would they know about it. Well, there are areas which I must say neither you or I know about it, and they include much of popular culture, yep. all of sport. Yep. Uh, do you try and cover these in your magisterial volume? Well, I mean, well, there are sort of mandatory figures that you have to put in, like, um, like Pelé, for example. Who I understand was I'm a sorry. Footballer. <laughs> footballer. Who, who I think, he? Uh, footballer, right? Brazilian, right. Brazilian. Okay, I think right, I've got okay. that right. And uh, some Bob, and Bob Dylan cracks it. I Don, checked that. Don Bradperson. Yes. Is there, Bradman. Bradman yeah. Is there? And um, and. Um, uh, it's a bit. <laughs> I rest my case. <laughs> it's a, I've, I've, I've ref, uh, Elvis Presley's there because I think it was a social phenomenon. The Beatles were there because I'm interested in entomology. What a huge, what a huge relief to know the Beatles cracked it. A bit light, a bit light on 14th century Islamic tiles, though. You are again. weak on that, but I have to say. With every addition, you get better in terms of gender balance. Oh, indeed, indeed. But one of the great tragedies, of course, is that until recently, I mean, when you reflect, say, um, when I was in the House of Representatives, when I was in the House of Representatives, there was not, when I was elected first, there was not one woman there. When I was in the Victorian Parliament, there was one woman there. And you see, the result is that you had, when I, when, when I was responsible for CSIRO, I was trying desperately to get a woman as a divisional head and to get women on the board uh, of CSIRO. And they were just, it was so difficult for women to put themselves forward. So the result is that you, you just simply didn't have people in the sort of eligible category. Because if you said, you know, who are the people who have been women ministers over the last X years, you know, you could, you could write every name out uh, on, a, on a very small piece of paper. But I'm not, I'm not focusing on... Oh, no, 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 I understand that, but I'm simply saying that women were well represented in some of the arts were well represented in, in literature, for example. There, 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 there are a lot of work. But if you think until recently, we, it was very hard to find many women architects. It was very hard to find many women um, uh, physicists. I mean, if you take the Royal Society in, in, in Britain, they didn't allow women in as fellows of the Royal Society until... Oh, I think it's about the 1960s. 
terribly late, so that women were, it was very, very difficult to find people who were able to, to move forward adequately so that they could, you could say, here they are. But th that doesn't justify the lack of women presidents in this book from the United States. There's not one. Well, it's I checked. It's, yes, I, well, I, yes, I'm struggling for that. And vice president, few secretaries of state. But, uh, but really, if you reflect the change in the last, well, in the last decades has been, has been monumental. But when you think how extraordinary, uh, how extraordinarily late it was before, before women were, um, uh, you know, getting into the front rank of any kind of profession. You know, you had no women judges until a few years ago. You had uh, comparatively few women historians. Uh, now you've got some uh, wonderful uh, historians um, in that category. But the, so I'm, I, I, all I could say was that compared, say, to uh, more objective but less interesting works like uh, Webster's Dictionary of World Biography or, or Chambers's Dictionary, uh, I always had far more women proportionally than they did. Well done. <laughs> Koala stamp. Well, that's, I know that's a very high award for <laughs> It you. is, it is. I'd like you to round off the evening by reading another favourite. Well, I might, the, the, the longest entry... No, not that one. No, no. <laughs> the longest entry, uh, I think, of, of the... Uh, is the one about... Uh, uh, is the Shakespeare entry. But I just read this part. I read do quite like. I said, very little is known about Shakespeare's life, what he read, other than the obvious sources, if he travelled, the inspirations for his powerful and original ideas, his political or religious beliefs, his sexual orientation. The richness, diversity and depth of his work led to the rise of bardolatry in the late 18th century but the meagre evidence of his personal life raised some questions, although it was not till the 1840s that alternative authors were proposed. Francis Bacon came first, then Edward de Vere, Earl of Oxford. The 19th century fiction that creative writing had to be autobiographical was picked up by Freud, who should have known better. 79 alternative candidates have now been proposed. Three are royal, 16 are, 16 are peers or peeresses, one a cardinal, one a saint, and 32 are published authors. None is remotely plausible. And I sit in brackets, J.S. Bach also had an enigmatic interior life, but his authorship is virtually unchallenged. I like, just, I like this paragraph. <laughs> Slips in writing about Europe or classical antiquity provide support for Shakespeare's authorship. No writer from a university would expose himself to such errors. Ulysses quotes Aristotle. There are clocks in Julius Caesar. There are striking examples of anatopism, that is, having something out of place. The Winter's Tale refers to the coasts and also a desert of Bohemia. Characters in Two Gentlemen of Verona, Verona sailed from Milan to Verona, although he might have been referring to travel by canal, and from Milan to the Adriatic in the Tempest. The only banks in Venice were mercantile and lovers would not be sitting on them. 
Shakespeare was a man of genius who trawled and reworked the secondary sources rather than having direct exposure to life outside England. His Venetians, Romans, Athenians, Sicilians, ancient Britons are essentially Londoners. Barry, absolutely brilliant. Ladies and gentlemen, data isn't information, information isn't knowledge, and knowledge isn't wisdom, but Barry takes data and it finishes up as wisdom. Thank you for uh, all coming out on this very, very cold night. And uh, thank you, Readings, for organising the event. And my publisher, Michael Wilkinson. And I've got a scarper down to Southbank now to do Late Night Live. <laughs> Lucky you. Ladies and gentlemen, very comforting, wonderful Philip Adams. Again, on behalf of Readings, on behalf of the Church of All Nations, Wilkinson Press, uh, thank you so much for coming. Uh, to you, Mr Adams, such a delight to hear your voice. So comforting to you, Mr Jones, thank you very much. I'm going to ask for you to stay right where you are so that perhaps people could come up and get their book signed or to say hello. Of course, I ask that you buy the book first. <laughs> Do you all have a very safe night? See you next time. <laughs>